You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Okay, so um, we're going to continue on in uh, the book of Judges, and we only went through the first three kind of uh, shorter stories of the Judges. And uh, it's my um, speculation, or I would have to say my belief, that if you've never read through the Bible, if you've never read all the way through it, you have no idea of the kind of stories that are in there. I mean, you hear about some of the main ones of, you know, Noah and the ark and, and Joseph and, and some of those, you know, Daniel and the lion's den and so forth. But there are so many stories that are within the biblical narrative that you probably haven't heard. And a lot of these characters you probably haven't heard of unless you've read through it. Um, and it, you know, even as we go to some of our modern movies like the Marvel or whatever, and, and you have the bad guys, and you have the heroes and everything, in a lot of ways, um, these stories are very much like that, except that our heroes don't put on suits of armor with capes. They are enveloped by the Spirit of God. And that's what we see as a consistent thing with the judges, that the Spirit of God comes upon them. And he um, moves through them to accomplish his purpose, whatever that is, whatever that task is that he's calling them to. <clears throat> now, I think one thing that we will see more clearly as we move forward is that um, we would tend to think that God would call out the, the best and the brightest and, and the most eloquent. But we already see, even by, by noticing that, you know, he chose Moses. And, um, you know, the first thing that Moses says, well, I, how can I do it? I can't even speak. You know, won't you send along my brother to help speak for me? Um, and this is a person who was, um, you know, of course, raised up in Pharaoh's court. So what we see is that sometimes the people that God selects to do his 
fulfill his purpose are not ones who we would perhaps think of um, ourself, you know, that it, they would make very good candidates. And particularly as we go into the judges, because some of these are just, I'll just say head scratchers. I mean, you, you read about these people and you think, my goodness, how in the world is this individual being called of God to do what he's, he's saying? Um, and uh, yet God does work through imperfect people. And that's, that's good news for us, don't you think? <laughs> because I think we would all maybe fall into that category of being imperfect. But God doesn't negate us or cancel us because we're not, you know, super evangelist or super uh, this or that. Um, because God can take, you know, the vessel that is willing and that's, that's the main characteristic, the vessel that is willing. And then he recreates that, uh, usually through the anointing of his Holy Spirit, to accomplish his purpose. And we see that in the disciples and, and uh, you know, in the, in the ones that God called out to follow him. You know, they weren't the, the best and the brightest. In fact, let me just read you something here. Uh, scripture just comes to mind. Um, yeah, let me find it here. Just be a minute. Okay, yeah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse 26, it says, Brothers and sisters, that's an amplified, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify, is that where I'm at? to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I have written in my margin um, just the word hobbit. <laughs> because, you know, the whole story of the Lord of the Rings is how it's kind of the characters that you'd never guess are going to be the champion. You know, you have all these um, elf warriors and dwarfs that can swing an axe and, and um, you know, all these, you know, great warriors. And yet the ones who are actually selected in the storyline to do the greatest thing to carry the ring is actually just a hobbit. And so you all are just, we all are just hobbits before God. Uh, God takes the simple, the, the common, and he fills us with his grace and with his wisdom and with his power, and he's able to do extraordinary things. So uh, the fact that we see within the scriptures that the people that God seems to select to lead his people 
that they are not um, ones that maybe we would normally choose or think would be qualified. Um, they become qualified because they, they say yes, they're available. Now, um, I want to, this is just by way of a little bit of review. Um, what can you tell me about that slide? What is that trying to tell us about the book of Judges? Okay, let me, let me simplify this question. Just the people, I mean, just, we're just talking about the, basically Joshua, people are more or less kind of walking with the Lord, kind of more on fire, so to speak. Yeah. And, and Judges, seems mm -hmm. like that pretty much goes out, and they pretty much adopt the culture that surrounds them. Exactly. So, so in the book of Joshua, you have a very faithful leader who is a, a typology of Jesus, who is courageous, who is faithful, who, who is consistent, who is reliable, who never wavers from following God. And he leads Israel in, in that way as well, um, in um, a passion and a love for God. And as we move to the judges, we see that all that kind of goes out the window. Not all of a sudden, but very. Um, once Joshua and the elders around him passed away, then um, another generation arose that did not know God or his ways, and they began to uh, forget about God and their commitment and their covenant uh, with him. So we're going to pick up um, now with um, the prophet Deborah. And um, she is the only uh, female judge that we have, but uh, she's, she's really an amazing person. Um, and we'll, we'll find that out here as we begin to uh, read the, the passage. So we're going to begin in Judges chapter 4. And um, it says, after Ehud, and now if you remember, Ehud was the... Uh, was the judge that sneaked up on, uh, what was, I'm sorry? Eglon. Yeah, Eglon, the, the uh, Jabba the Hutt, and, uh, <laughs> and pierced him with his sword and then escaped. And then you have a uh, Shamgar who basically, very little is written about him, but it's all positive. Um, so he's a, he's a person who um, accomplished things without maybe a lot of notoriety. Uh, and then it brings us to uh, Deborah. And after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so that the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan. So they were fighting against the Canaanites who were oppressing them, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. And because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites... For 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now, we need to understand that 900 chariots was quite a formidable uh, military force, uh, particularly if you had no chariots, if you were on foot, and maybe you had um, a spear or a sword or maybe just even a scythe or, or something like that, and that's what you were going into a battle with. And then you see on the horizon this big cloud arising, and here comes 900 chariots. Well, they're being pull pulled by horses. So you see all that pounds of flesh and iron roaring at you. 
and that's enough to put you know fear and just cause people to run. So um, Jabin, the king of Canaan, and uh, Sisera, his commander, you know, have this mighty force. And it says here, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Libadoth, was leading Israel at that time. Now, um, we don't know very much about Libadoth. He kind of disappears from the scene. But she held court under the palm of Deborah, um, which was kind of like her, her place of rulership or judgment, I guess, would maybe be a better word, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, uh, from Kadesh uh, in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Now, here's an opportunity for a warrior or somebody who, you know, was supposed to be somebody. And, and look what he says. This is the, the commander. He says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, that would not really inspire a lot of confidence, would it? I mean, if, you're, if your leader said... So, so here's Deborah. She's, she's a judge or basically a counselor. People come with, with their, their issues, their problems. And uh, so she's also a prophetess. So the Lord is speaking through her. And so people recognize the hand of God upon her. Um, but she's not a warrior. You know, she's not like one who has been practicing with a sword or something like that. It's just that she is a person who is recognized as having authority. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, but because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Now, it's a little bit unclear um, whether Deborah would have, was perhaps thinking that this would be her or whether she just simply, you know, you know had the word of the Lord, which I would tend to think that... that um, she was not necessarily thinking about herself. It's just she knew that God was going to give this, um, the enemy over into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Those would be the two tribes of, of Israel. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law. So, okay, and he pitched his tent by the great tree in, I don't know how to pronounce that, near Kadesh. And when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him, and from Harasheth Hagoim, and in the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Now, um, that should have been enough for Barak to know that, you know, God was going to be fighting for them because he had received this word that the Lord had said um, these Canaanite, this Canaanite uh, army was going to be defeated. 
Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Now, it doesn't really tell us the size of this military force. But if you have 900 chariots, you probably at least have two in each chariot. One, one a driver and one a, you know, an, an archer or something like that. And then you would normally have a lot of foot soldiers. And they, they've come barreling down um, the mountain. Um, and this was something that I learned in just, you know, doing a little further study on this and, and listening to uh, this one person speak about uh, this passage. Now, you have to ask this question, why would Sisera dismount from his chariot and start running off? Um, you know, it's not clearly uh, known by just the text here, except that um, as you look ahead to Deborah's song, the next chapter in chapter 5, um, part of her song or her poem, her poetry, um, it, in verse 4 it says, O Lord, when you went out from Seir, you, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook and the heavens poured and the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, what this one uh, teacher was saying is that she is, is actually saying the same thing happened here. And that is that on that day as those chariots came, there was a downpour of rain. Well, what's going to happen if, if you're coming into a bunch of mud? You know, your chariot is just going to, you know, it's just going to sink down into the mud and you're not going to be able to go. You're stuck. In fact, you are a sitting duck because you're stuck there and you can't move. So that's already beginning to cause a panic amongst them because their whole battle plan has now been messed up. And so Sistera, along with all his, his uh, soldiers, you know, hop off their chariots and start running. And, um, you know, once that happens, then um, it, it simply is like a dog seeing a cat running across the yard. You know what happens then. That dog is going to be hot on its tail, or a squirrel, maybe I should say, because there might be some cat lovers in this, uh, this room here. <laughs> okay. Um, so Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of uh, Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Now, what was also um, pointed out is that Heber appears to have a confidence or a friendly relationship with, with the uh, Canaanite peoples. And so he, he probably, um, you know, had some relations with uh, Jabin, the king, as well as Sisera. Um, because as we read on in the story, we're going to see how his wife, uh, Yael, was, was seemingly known by Sisera. But he also was friendly with Israel. So in some ways, he was kind of between these, these two warring uh, factions. 
So Yael went out to meet Sisera. Oh, well, let me back up. Verse 17. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. Now, at this point, uh, Sisera already knows that his army is being decimated and um, is being slaughtered, and he's just now running for his life. And so, you know, he sees this, this uh, tent, and these were, the Kenites were kind of like a nomadic group of people that kind of traveled about and would usually be herdsmen and so forth. And so he recognizes this, this tent, and he comes, and um, he's looking for a way of escape. And um, Yael then covers him over with, with a blanket, and he says, I'm thirsty. Please give me some water. But she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Yael, Heber's wife, so Caesar up very tired. He's been running in, in the heat. He's, you know, probably has his armor on, so it's heavy. You know, maybe a metal helmet. You can imagine what that feels like, you know, in the sun. And uh, he comes in the tent and lays down. Corson has a blanket over him, so he's probably really warm. He, he promptly falls asleep. But Yael, he, uh, Heber's wife, picks up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him. And um, while he's laying there, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. You know, I would imagine that that was a very sudden death, in, in that he had, you know, he never did really come to with, with a tent peg going right through your brain. You know, it would have just paralyzed him, and he would have been... He would have been a goner. Now, this is, this is quite a, a woman to do this. I mean, you know, this is the commander of the military army. In fact, she may have even known him. But I think that she also recognized that God was doing a work of... Um, conquering this army uh, through the, the, uh, the Israeli army, the, the Israelites. So Barak then came in pursuit of Sisera, and Yael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued uh, Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the, ha- and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin and the, the Canaanite king until they destroyed him. Now, um, I think one thing that we can recognize already in the stories that we've been covering is that God uses very unorthodox ways to accomplish his purposes. I mean, trumpets and, and priests marching around a city to 
you know, bring the walls of Jericho down. Um, and as we'll see in some of the, the stories coming up, he, he makes sure that Israel knows that it's him who, who is bringing about the victory and not through military might. Now, um, I would like to have, I'd like to actually read through this song of Deborah or this poem. Uh, because apparently it's believed to be a part of the book of wars of the Lord mentioned in, in Numbers 21. Um, it's considered a classic and just because of its beauty. And uh, there's a couple things that I want us to notice. So um, could I have just a number of readers? Um, can we just start here and uh, we'll just go over here to Hannah and Harley and right across here. And maybe just read, let's see, we have um, 31. So why don't you read about, okay, you read nine verses, and then we'll, we'll just um, have you take a break where you see there's a break. So go ahead and just begin. So Deborah, you know, writes this song or this celebration um, in recognition of this great battle that um, on one hand, Barak led, but it wasn't because of his particular expertise or bravado or bravery, but it was because of Deborah leading the people out and inspiring Barak to take on this, these um, Canaanite uh, enemies. Okay, so go ahead, Maya. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O king, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamkar, son of Anak, in the day of um, Yahya, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villages ceased in Israel, and they ceased to be with uh, be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When we, When new gods were chosen, the war was in the gates. Was shield, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Okay, Hannah. Uh, just uh, however. Yeah. Tell it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates, march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinadab. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down from me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. 
From Machir it marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great surgings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the, for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landing. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights in the field. Harley? Go ahead and just finish it out. You know, one thing that's uh, kind of amazing here is, as you look at this um, song or this poem, and that is it was at a time of low spirituality, you know, in the nation. But one thing that um, I see with, with Deborah, you know, as she's writing or singing this song, um, she, uh, like in verse 2, it says here, um, when the prince in Israel take the lead, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. And and you see this this kind of repeated thing of of worship and praise to God. You know, throughout her poem, uh, a recognition of of what God has done and um, uh, really acknowledging you know, the greatness of God and what he's accomplished. And, you know, so she stands apart from the, uh, the spiritual emptiness of the nation as one who maintained a, a love and faithfulness to God. And I, I think that that's, you know, obviously why she would have been, you know, called out by the Lord to, to be a judge because we see that coming out in her, 
in her song. Um, it's interesting as pivotal and key uh, that Deborah was in this whole um, military campaign. Let me just uh, point to another scripture um, in Hebrews. You're perhaps familiar with um, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, what we sometimes call the hall of faith. Um, And let me just read you uh, a couple sentences here and see whether you um, pick up on anything. So I'm looking at uh, verse 31. And through 33, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. And it goes on to talk about some of the exploits that they did. Is there any observation that you make about, uh, you know, on that passage? Barak is mentioned, but not Deborah. Exactly. Um, uh, He he is, in a sense, given credit (laughs) for the faith uh, of that victory, and in fact, it was the the faith of Deborah who inspired him to step forward, um, and and some of these other characters, which which I guess you know we we have to weigh in the balance of of, um, of of the narrative. Some of these other characters are not necessarily you know real inspiring characters, um, but they are recognized as part of the the. Uh, Hall of Faith. But I think in reading this story, we can see that... So let me, let me just back up. I think it would, would probably be um, understood that normally a woman would not be leading an army um, back then. Uh, that just would have been an abnormal situation. But I think the fact that Deborah said yes, that Deborah was in a position to respond to God, that she, it would have had to also be that she recognized what God was doing. So, you know, her, her position as a judge, um, and, I, you know, she probably didn't have on her desk judge, Judge Deborah. You know, that's probably not w- the way it was. She simply was a person who was recognized, who had the authority of the Lord upon her life. And so people would come. And it was more in kind of a looking back that they would have seen that she was a leader or an inspiration or an influence to lead the nation. Because when the nation was being hard-pressed, She was the one who stepped forward, um, and she was the one who said, you know, this army has been given into your hands. She recognized that, and she basically, you know, told Barak to step up. I mean, come on, man, let's go. Come on, man. (laughs) And and, uh, it was was through her um, uh, foresight, her... uh, 
humility, her, her fear of God, that she recognized the importance of the time. And she stepped up and, of course, then through her and then through Barak. And then, interestingly enough, through another woman that this military army was destroyed. So in this whole campaign, um, the two, two of the women had the main role in defeating this Canaanite army, um, which is interesting and just for us to take note of. So um, let's move on then to, well, let me first ask. Does anybody have a response or a thought that you want to just bring forth? Okay. All right. Um, so the next um, judge we're going to be looking at is Gideon. And I think as a child, um, you know, we're, we're seeing... <laughs> We're probably used to hearing kind of a glossed over uh, picture of Gideon, um, you know, as the hero, as a person of, you know, great favor and uh, bravery and so forth. But let's just read this. Um, let's just read this story and see what we can draw from uh, this character. And what I would also ask you to do is be thinking about what are the character qualities that you see in this person in Gideon? Um, yeah, what kind of a person is he? What kind of a leader? In fact, he's not a leader at this point as we get started. So in chapter 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Um, now, interestingly enough, just a little background on the Midianites. Let me read my... Um, so the Midianites were actually a son, a descendant of Abraham because uh, Midian would have been the son of, after Sarah died, uh, Abraham married a woman, Keturah, and uh, his son was, his, the fourth of six sons was Midian. So he is a descendant of, of uh, Abraham, but, um, and at the beginning, you know, they would have been, you know, on probably good terms, but, you know, many years have passed and the Midianites, you know, settled into a land and, you know, became very, well, possessive of it. And I think we can understand that as, as these um, uh, nations or these peoples heard the story about what was happening with, with Israel and they were coming out and, and nobody was standing, first of all, that they came through the, they were you know, delivered out of Egypt, that they came through the Red Sea, and then they were destroying the um, the people groups that were not wanting them to go through because they were afraid that Israel would be wanting to take over their land. And this would have also been true of the Midianites. But now we're fast forward to where they have been uh, living around one another uh, for some time. So the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites uh, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped in the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. 
and did not spare a living thing for Israel, uh, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. So they came up with uh, came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, and it was impossible to count the men and their camels. And they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So, um, they were really being oppressed. I mean, if you think about it, everything was getting taken, you know. There was a supply chain crisis going on there. And, um, <laughs> and you know, their crops were taken, their livestock was taken, and these people were basically looking for a place just to hide out in caves and in forests and and probably less forests, but just in rocks and mountains and so forth. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, this is not Gideon, this prophet, that, but he brought forth somebody to speak this word to them, to remind them of their history. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of your oppressors, I drove them from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the coke, the oak of Ophrah, the, the coke machine of Ophrah, <laughs> and that belonged to Joash the, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat. Uh, in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, I found this rather interesting just to understand uh, why it says threshing wheat in the wine press. Uh, normally, um, the wheat would have been threshed or the grain would have been, the barley would have been threshed on a, a higher hill because the breezes would be coming in there. And the way they would do that is they would be tramping around on this grain. So they would, they would you know, be chopping it off and having it in a pile and so they would be tramping it or beating it. Um, and, and then what they would do is they'd take these forks and they would just kind of flip it up into the air. And what would happen is the wind would catch it and it would blow the, the chaff uh, away. Isn't that somewhere in the scriptures where the chaff that the wind drives away? <laughs> in the Psalms, that's right. So that's the picture of it right there. And so what you would have after you've done that enough that you, your chaff would be mainly separated from the wheat and you would have a pile of grain there that they would probably even sift even further. But the wine press would have been down lower uh, where they would have been uh, tramping on that to let it run out for their, uh, for their wine or for their uh, juice, for the juice. And what Gideon was doing was he was basically hiding what he was doing uh, from the Midianites because he didn't want to have them come swooping in and take all what he had. And so then what we have here is, it says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you can just imagine that when he heard, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, Gideon's probably like, okay, who just came up behind me? I wonder, I wonder who he's talking about, you know, because, you know, He's not seeing himself as a mighty warrior. He's hiding. He's, he's kind of cowering down. And he doesn't see himself as, as a mighty warrior. Now, one could ask the question, 
is, is this kind of like a little bit of a, a sarcasm or is it prophetic? And I would tend to think it's more prophetic that God is calling out. I mean, on one hand, it could sound like sarcasm. But I don't think God uses sarcasm. <laughs> I mean, if we don't use sarcasm at our base, I don't think God does either. Isn't that right? No sarcasm here, right? <laughs> um, yes, that's right. Keep it, keep it on the up and up. So Gideon is anything but a mighty warrior. In fact, the whole nation are they're oppressed and they are depressed um, because they've they they have a small god you know just as the Israelites looked into uh, the promised land and said you know the Anakites are like giants in the land and we're like grasshoppers that's why they would have been thinking I also get the impression that they also didn't really have uh, very much in the way of weaponry. Uh, we even see that in um, uh, Deborah's uh, poem. Let me see whether I can find it here quickly, uh, because she says something along this line. Oh, yeah. In verse 8, when they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So... You know, in other words, they're not a very well-armed um, group of people. And maybe it's because uh, the Amalekites and the Midianites would have, you know, run them off. And obviously, if you're hiding in a cave, you're probably not manufacturing weapons. So they maybe had more, you know, um, you know tools and things that would be used for, for harvesting and so forth. So not very many weapons. Um, but Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all, the, all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? So he's probably repeating what, this, what he heard the prophets say. But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. It's like, oh, brother, do you not get it? Um, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Now, um, Christian, there's a message there. That's a sermon that you could preach on. Go in the strength that you have. You know, and then what the angel also says is, not only go in the strength that you have, but am I not sending you? So it's a reminder that it's a reminder that I'm with you. It's not just in who you are. He, he's saying that I'm with you and I'm all you need. Now, at that point in time, Gideon and, you know, any one of us might not see how this is supposed to work out. But if God appears to you or if the angel of the Lord, and, and once again, I think one could make the, point that this is also a theophany. Have I used that word before? I think I have a theophany or another term that's similar would be a Christophany. But basically a, 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 a vision or a manifestation 
of Jesus or the Son of God in the form of a personage who comes to speak truth and and direction to his people. We saw that in the the commander of the Lord's army, and we'll see that in a different times. But um, he knows it's the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, go in the strength that you have. Am I not with you? And look what Gideon says. But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the, the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. <laughs> you know, so again, Gideon is not a person of a lot of boldness or courage, or um, he, he's not what you would call a natural leader. He's not one who um, seems like you'd want to, de- you know, depend your, you know, your life on, um, because he seems to be very weak. The Lord answered and said, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Now, that's a very clear statement of what what God was speaking to him about what would be happening and what he could actually believe in. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait. I'll wait till you return. Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and uh, from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the, the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought it to them and offered them to him under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. The angel of the Lord touched the meat of the, and the unleavened bread and a fire flared up from the rock, and it consumed the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Now, I would think that would be a pretty good sign, wouldn't you say? You know, if you have someone standing before you, and you've just made this nice meal, and you put this on a rock, and, and you know, he touches it, and a fire flames up, and then, you know, the angel disappears. Uh, it seems like you wouldn't need anything else. <laughs> it seems like that should be the sign you need. Um, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrite. Um, now it's very interesting. Um, we have this little story of what, um, so we see how God is ooching Gideon on, you know, to become bolder, to be, become stronger, to uh, take steps of faith. And um, then he is instructed to take the bull, seven-year-old bull. Now this is the same number of years that the Midianites have been oppressing Israel. The seven-year-old bull to tear down his father's altar to Baal and to cut down the Asherah pole, the pole. So these are places of worship of false gods that Gideon's father uh, has in his own, you know, backyard or around his um, around his home. So this is the this is the environment that Gideon has grown up in. You know, where there is false god worship, and which which seems to indicate that Israelite the Israelites. Um, 
are assimilating, or another uh, word we could use is that they are practicing syncretism. Syncretism is when you merge, when you merge different faiths, you know, in other words, your Christian faith with other things. And it's kind of a mixture, uh, a mixture of some of this and some of that. And so that's, that's, so they would have maybe still said, yes, they're Israelites. Yes, that God is God. But we also have Baal and we also have this. And we also have that. And, um, uh, you know, so they, they're already um, worshiping other gods, which is the reason why they're in the spot they're in. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. You know, so Gideon and some servants do this at night because, you know, they're actually afraid of what would happen to them. So they're doing this at night. And when the town wakes up and they find out that these these uh, altars to these false gods have been destroyed and, in fact, they've been used as an offering to, to God, they're ready to um, kill <laughs> Gideon. I mean, so this is the Israelites and they're ready to kill Gideon for having destroyed these, these uh, altars, the false <clears throat> gods. Um, but his father uh, intervenes and I think through wisdom himself, uh, when they carefully investigated they were told Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash to bring out, bring out your son. He must die because he had broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash says, well, can't, can't uh, Baal save himself? You know, what kind of God is this? I mean, why do you have to defend Baal? Let him defend himself. And that seems to be sufficient to, you know, call off the dogs and they, and they back off. Uh, now all Midian, all the Midianites and Malchites, the eastern peoples, joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Um, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Uh, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by, your, by my hand, as you have um, promised, I will place a wool. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is only dew on the fleece and, and not on the ground, the ground is dried, then I will know that you have saved Israel by my hand. And so that's what he does. And so he takes you know, piece of wool, and when he goes to bed that night, he lays it out on the ground. And the next morning, um, the ground is dry, but the wool is full of dew. And he picks it up and he wrings it out, and there's a bowl full of dew. So there's heavy dew, I mean, to wring out that much water. And, um, and then that's still not enough. So he says, well, God, you know, just one more time. How about if we switch things around here a little bit? And how about if you have, I'm going to put this out of here again and the wool, make that dry and the ground wet. And sure enough, the next morning, the ground is wet, but the wool is, is covered with dew. And so Gideon knows that God is with him and that the uh, Midianites have been uh, given to him and he takes courage. So I'm going to summarize just a little bit um, 
of what we have with the rest of this uh, story. So Gideon rallies his troops, and it looks like he's able to gather or muster about 35,000, excuse me, 32,000 men. In order that, okay, so God says to him, you have too many men. Look what it says here. You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. It's not too many men for you. But God says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her strength is what saved her, announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So how did 32,000 men, 20,000 leave? Um, And only 10,000 remained. Now, if you're, <laughs> if you're facing um, a big battle and two-thirds of your people leave, that's kind of unnerving. It's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, we have that many people that are cowards or not wanting to fight. But sure enough, um, only 10,000 are left. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men Take them down to the water, and I will sift them there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So basically what um, he watched them do as the men came down to the stream to drink, those who put their face in the water and and drank were um, rejected, and those who pulled the water up and and lapped it or drunk it out of their hands were the ones that were chosen. And it says, 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now, that's extraordinary. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, facing a, you know, strong military and what you have is BB guns or something like that, you know, or slingshots. Um, And that you're, you know, 300. Now, I believe what the Midianites, the Amalekites had was um, 130,000 or something like that. So they are vastly outnumbered. I mean, vastly outnumbered. And um, that would make, it's not just Gideon when you think about it. What if you were one of the 300? <laughs> like, okay, I think I'm beginning to feel a little bit of fear here. Maybe I should go with the other guys. Um, I mean, to be the 300 facing this vast army, I think um, God was doing something in the hearts of the people. He was preparing them to recognize and see what he was about to do. So they settle, they settle into this valley, and um, then, then Gideon says, okay, uh, everybody come and pick up your weapons. Here's a jar. Here's a torch. Um, here's a jar. Here's a torch. There's, there's no sword. Now, maybe there were some swords, but, um, you know, he's, he's handing out 
jars and 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 torches. Yes, Dave, you had a question yeah, or a thought. Or a thought. I think the reason the three hundred men were fit because they were kind of laughing out of their mm -hmm. heads or more alert. Their heads were up more so they right. see the enemy was coming, but the other guys put their head right down in the water. Yeah, yeah, that that's that was the distinction for sure. It would have maybe made you want to run down to the river and uh, put your face down in the water, though. <laughs> I think I'll go with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but God is God is doing something to set them apart. Um, he's He's giving them, I believe, a gift of faith. So I think that the Spirit of God is not just on Gideon at this point. It has to be upon, you know, the whole um, army, even though it's just, what, 301 persons. So it says here then, verse 17, Watch me, he told them, follow my lead, and when I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do when I... When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon and a hundred men uh, reached the edge of the camp and the beginning of the middle watch. Um, I'm going to guess that's midnight or something like that. Um, just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets. They were to blow and they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. So in the darkness, they see all these torches and they hear the blasting of these trumpets. And in their minds, they've been surrounded by this huge army. And they're, they're uh, again, I think that, that God does something in, in the Midian, uh, Midianite army by creating fear. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So they must have looked around in the dark and thought that it was, that they had already been invaded and they started slashing and hacking at each other and they ended up um, killing one another. And... Um, and basically, they, they put the, um, the army to flight. The army fled to Beth Shita towards Zerara as far as the border of Abel. Hmm, I'll just, yeah, I might as well just stop there. Um, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Bera. So, what we have then is that. Um, they have defeated this military, but some of them have escaped. And so Gideon's men are pursuing them. And there's two military leaders from the Midianites, Zuba and Zalmunna. Uh, and they've taken off. And so Gideon is pursuing them because he doesn't want to leave anybody. He doesn't want to have anybody come back on them. And he stops uh, to ask for sustenance from some of his fellow Israelites. And the first thing is that they criticize him on is, why didn't you include us? You know, it's like, it's over. You know, why, why are they wanting to uh, be thrown in that, especially when the military or the army had been pared down? Um, and 
Anyway, they do not give them anything to food, any other food or, or sustenance. And Gideon pursues uh, Ziba and Zalmunna um, to a place where they find them and, um, and basically they kill them. Uh, and they bring them, they bring them back. The, the two kings, uh, oh, let me see here. Ziba and Zalmunna, the two kings, the Midianites fled, but he pursued them and captured them uh, routing their entire, entire army. So what we have is is um, God um, again working in a very extraordinary way of acting outside of normal military protocol, not having a big army, not using uh, weapons, but using very unorthodox means of defeating them. But it was trust in God. And what God wanted to say, it, it's me who defeats us army, not you. Um, and then we have a couple of stories uh, here with uh, Gideon, and, and they want him to become the leader, and he says, no, I don't, I don't want to lead, nor my, my son, but just give us some gold, because the Midianites had, had gold, they had earrings. And so they all gave them gold ornaments, and he took this, and he melted it down and created a statue. Um, and, you know, you would just think that they would learn, but it says that here in verse 27 of chapter 8, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, and all Israel, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Um, but it does say that the land had 40 years of, of peace after that. Uh, so it seems like even though God has done a very miraculous thing, they're right back to square one again where they are now worshiping, you know, a gold image. Um, so Gideon had um, 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. <coughs> And he had a concubine. Boy, he's a busy man. <laughs> Seventy sons, and he had many wives and a concubine. And he lived in Shechem, which would have been up in the northern part of, uh, of Israel. And also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Uh, Gideon's son of Joash died at a good old age, and he was... Gideon's son of Joash had died at a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of his father in Ophrah. But no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites began to prostitute themselves to the Baals. And they set up Baal Barith as the gods. And they did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbaal, which was Gideon, for all the good that he had done for them. Now, um, let's think back a second. Uh, what was 40 years ago? Uh, well, for, for most of you, you don't know. <laughs> um, but 40 years uh, can seem like a fairly long time in terms of how things change. So uh, in 40 years, basically what happens is that Israel is beginning to fall away again. And um, they're repeating the same cycle of um, losing faith in God and... Um, worshiping other gods and becoming like the nations around them. 
So Abimelech is actually kind of like a, uh, he's not one of the, the sons of Gideon's wives. He's of a concubine. So, you know, the family did not want to have any of the inheritance go to him. And so he was rejected. So Abimelech would have been uh, one of those individuals who probably lived with a certain amount of shame or lived with rejection and, and had pulled away uh, from the family and was living separately. But, but he was quite a uh, warrior and um, he was quite a, you know, a, a strong dude. And so when the, um, so who is it, uh, oppressing them now? So again, you have a, let me just find out where, who it is that's coming against them now. Sometimes I lose track of who's oppressing who. The Midianites, yeah. Again, coming back on them. And so what ends up happening is this family who probably has been living in, you know, in ease, um, they're not up to the task. And they say, well, why don't we draft Abimelech? You know, he's, he's quite a, you know, quite a, a guy. And a reckless adventurer is, is what, the way they um, describe him. And... Um, and so they, they go and ask whether he would come and lead them um, to resist this enemy army. Um, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit because of time. So verse 32, it says, After Abimelech had governed, governed Israel for three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against him. And God did this in order that the crime against Jerubbaal, 70 sons, uh, that of shedding, shedding their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech. So um, after he was made um, the leader of of the Israelites or that area of Israelites, um, he uh, committed the sin of slaughtering the other brothers. I'm just trying to think where where do I want to wrap up here because I'd like to get to the next. Well, let me just read on here. So now Gael, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem and its citizens put their confidence in him. And after they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their God. And while they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. And then Gael, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem, that we should be subject to him? Isn't it Jerubel's son? Um, and isn't Zebo his deputy? Sir, the, uh, serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, Call out your whole army. When Zebel, the governor of the city, heard what Gael, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry, angry, and under the cover he went, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gael, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields, and in the morning, at sunrise, advance against the city. 
when Gael and his men come out against you, do whatever uh, your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gael, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. And when Gael saw them, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. And Zebel replied, You mistake the shadows of the, men, shadows of the mountains for men. But Gael spoke up again, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and a company is coming from the direction of the, of the soothsayer's tree. Then Zebel said to him, Where is your big talk now? You who said, Who is Abimelech, that you should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gael led out, and the citizens of Shechem fought Abimelech, and Abimelech chased them, and many fell wounded in the, fl- in the flight all the way to the entrance to the gate. Abimelech stayed in Aruma, and Zubal drove Gael and his brothers out of, out of Shechem. The next day the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was what they reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. And when he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city. The two companies rushed upon those fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went to the stronghold of the temple of el Barith. When Abimelech heard that that's where they had assembled, there he took all his men and went up to Mount Zalman. He took an axe and cut down some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders, and he ordered his men with him, Quick, do what you see me to do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech, and they piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next Abimelech went to Thebes, and besieged it and captured it inside the city. However, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They locked themselves in and climbed onto the, um, the tower roof. And Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance, the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called out to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. You know, what, what we are seeing here is um, a people that, as they fall away from God, as they go further and further away from worship of God and following the laws of God, they, they become uh, more bloodthirsty and they become more um, evil, I guess is the best way of putting it. And, and that's what we're seeing happening here. 
you know, Abimelech starts out by helping, but then, but then he has a certain bloodlust himself and, and um, you know, uh, kills all these people. And, and um, you know, even though God uses him to accomplish some purposes, then because he does not worship and serve God, you know, his own life becomes a one uh, spotted with, with evil and... Um, falls away from God, and so, so does Israel. So um, we're seeing that the judges, as I said at the beginning, were oftentimes very imperfect people, um, and not ones that we would want to lead us or that we would want to be under. But, but God uh, sometimes raises up people that do have this, these imperfect... Um, character, but at the same time, he's not endorsing what they do uh, completely. So that's what we're going to be seeing, uh, particularly as we move forward in through the judges here.